Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from Wiltshire, where, needless to say, it's raining. Hello, it's Richard Heller from a gloomy south-east London where it's also raining. We join you today on the third day of an England Test match against Sri Lanka. After Sri Lanka had a horrible first day, they've fought back a little bit into the match, but their position still looks pretty hopeless. To discuss not only the match, but the underlying state of Sri Lankan cricket, which is a fascinating story, we're delighted to welcome a young historian of Sri Lankan cricket who's written a very authoritative book about it called An Island's Eleven, which we'll be able to enjoy in summer. Peter and I have um, read extracts from it already. It traces the whole story of Sri Lankan cricket from its beginnings in 1796, right up to its uh, T20 final in 2014. So we're thrilled to welcome Nicholas Brooks. Hi, Richard. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on. Are you in Sri Lanka or are you in back in Britain now? Nicholas? I am back in Britain. I'm actually just down the road from Richard in South East London. So I'm oh. seeing the same grey skies. But you did spend two years in Sri Lanka and um, you taught there at one of Sri Lanka's leading cricket schools, didn't you? I did. I was incredibly lucky to be offered a role teaching part-time at St Thomas's and to actually lodge in a little bungalow on the grounds. Um, It was sort of remarkable arriving to this sort of old, historic, creaky bungalow, no hot water, nothing quite different from what I was used to in the UK, but with the most incredible view of sort of really gorgeous cricket oval, where there was always cricket being played and cricket of a very high standard. Mm. Wow. So St Thomas's School is, is sort of the, in cricketing terms, or all terms maybe, is that it's sort of the Eton of, of Sri Lanka, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There are two schools in Colombo, uh, Royal College and St Thomas's, both founded by Old Etonians in the 19th century. And they were really at the vanguard of uh, Sri Lankan cricket, the first instances of cricket being played by locals was at these schools and they play an annual match the big match which is a three-day test as it were at the ssc grounds a test ground it goes it's attended by about ten thousand people each day so it's a huge celebratory social event and especially sort of during the first half of the 20th century these two schools really provided the bulk of sri lanka's national cricketers or salons, as as it was salons, as it was yeah. then, up until uh, nineteen seventy two, I think. So these two schools really have an amazing cricketing heritage. I knew when I was a child, I knew a product of St Thomas's, um, quite a famous Salonese cricketer, as he became, as it was still known, Dan Pearshow, and he made a. I was a kid. And he made a. He was one of the many people who made a futile attempt to coach me. Um, <laughs> you're much too uh, modest, Richard. I no. used to face oh, your no. oh, prime. No, you were quite good. I worked. I worked my way up to mediocrity. Yes, um, it, it was a very hard work. But there were some other famous cricketers from there, aren't there? Dulip Mendis is the name I saw as well. Yeah, From absolutely. Dulek yeah. Mendis. Uh, more recently, there's been uh, Jeevan Mendis and Kaushal Silva. And going back a little further, names like Anuratena Kuhn, uh, Michael Tessera. So there's a real kind of um, heritage. And I think if you compare it to Eton and Harrow, 
who've produced sort of relatively few England players, Royal and St. Thomas's, I think combined, there's over a hundred. And really the bulk of the national captains right up until Arjuna Ranatunga took over. Mm. What's so, uh, I love this picture of the annual match, which still goes on and is attended by 10,000 people. I mean, it is it is like the Eden Harrow match used to be in the, you know, before World War Two, really, when it was a massive event. Yeah, I mean, for an outsider experiencing it is absolutely remarkable. You sort of hear from everyone that it's got more atmosphere than the Sri Lanka game and you struggle to believe it. And then you turn up to the ground at the day and it's absolute pandemonium. There's hawkers sort of stretching miles, selling blue flags and things like that. And um, it's a very kind of boozy, raucous celebration. Lots of old boys coming back from overseas to watch... um, it's televised. A gathering uh, of the clans. Yeah. A gathering of the clan, really. There's little sort of individual tents. I mean, it's by far the noisiest sporting event I've ever <laughs> attended. You um, walk around the ground and you can hear horrible karaoke being sung everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, the captains have their, uh, you know, huge pictures on the front page of the paper. So uh, coming from England, where really schoolboy cricket is, you know, two men and a dog, it's uh, just absolutely mind-blowing. Are there other important school matches of the same calibre? And are there others played over three days, which is uh, something that that used to be done in important school matches in India and Pakistan as well? So there are other important school matches, Richard. This um, big match tradition caught on so that pretty much every major cricketing school will have a season-ending big match, which is at a neutral ground, normally one of the big Colombo venues or sort of for Gould's big schools, Richmond and Mahinda, I think it is. They play at the Gould Test Ground. Uh, So this, you know, March in Sri Lanka is big match season, as it were, and they're just happening sort of every week and every weekend. Most of them are played over two days, which is the tradition for much of schools cricket in Sri Lanka. Most matches are two day, two innings affairs, sort of there's a first uh, one day competition that's run simultaneously. But I think the general rule is that once these big matches are over 100 years old, they then transfer and become three day fixtures. Wow. And are they still, what's the state of cricket in state schools in Sri Lanka? Well, actually, uh, strangely, Royal, which is, Sri Lanka's Eton probably is actually a state school. It's a selective entry school um, that children apply to. So the kind of distinction between private and state oh. schools isn't quite the same as it is in the UK. So they have what we used to call a grammar school system, effectively. Exactly, Peter. Yeah. Well, direct, direct grant sounds more likely. Yes, sounds a little bit more like that. Mm. But anyway, it seems to us, Nicholas, as though school cricket is still very strong in in Sri Lanka, but a lot of things seem to be going wrong afterwards. And, um, you know, why why are things going wrong for them at the moment? Uh, Well, um, it's a complicated question, Richard. How long have you got is probably the first (laughs) thing I should say. Uh, I think really well sri lanka's unique as far as i can tell in that it's the only country only major cricketing country i've come across where the first class system is founded upon clubs rather than sort of a territorial system so that means because of the way cricket spread to the local people the large majority of these clubs are in colombo so i think now in sri lanka you have 26 first class clubs 14 in premier a trophy 12 in the B Trophy, and the large majority of them are based in and around Colombo or Western Province. Um, 
So, I mean, I think you look at 26 first class teams for a population of about 20 million is probably far too many to start with. And then you think of the fact that they're not really reaching large swathes of that population. Um, and you've got a kind of real, really problematic system. So the sort of huge number of first class sides is a problem. Uh, and really, there are questions over whether first class cricket in Sri Lanka is preparing cricketers for the international game. The pitches tend to favour batsmen and spin bowlers. There's very little encouragement for quicks. The standard is sort of quite widely denigrated. It's um, generally accepted that there's a big chasm between the standard of first class cricket and the sort of standard of test cricket. And equally, it's hard for kids coming straight out of school to break into these first class sides. There tends to be a bit of a sort of a period of falling by by the wayside for promising players between aged 18 and 23. Nicholas, you say all of that, and I it's just incredibly familiar from anybody who knows Indian cricket or Pakistan cricket, all those points apply. And I guess they apply when that incredibly exhilarating moment for us, for world cricket happened, when the sudden the arrival of Sri Lanka as a major test cricket nation, you won the World Cup in, in 1996 with these fabulous players who basically, Jasiri, the silver, Muralithram, they sort of reinvented the game of cricket itself and I imagine they'd have come through those same problems so what well we're wondering as a lover of like everybody in the world loves Sri Lankan cricket we're wondering is there some sort of awful moment happening when it's just not sustainable anymore and what's the reason for that um I think that is a sort of an awful maybe not an awful moment coming but uh a slide that's set to continue unless there are really major changes made I think if you look at 96, it was a bit of a perfect storm. You had a real, really commanding national captain coming in in the form of Ranatunga. Uh, As you touch on, Peter, you had some remarkable players, Jaya Saria, Bowlers, Vas and Murali, a really experienced batting lineup and a World Cup in Asia where Sri Lanka had a specific game plan, which I think was progressive, uh, very modern, and they took teams by surprise. I think the rest of the world's really caught up and has continued to grow and develop over the past two and a half decades. Whereas I think there was kind of perhaps a attitude in Sri Lanka, we've won the World Cup with our current system, everything's fine and hunky-dory, and there's really been very little progress made since 96. Well, you did have a sort of second coming, as it were, didn't you, in the 2000s, Sangakara, Jayawardena, they were so... Dilshan, still Morelli, Morelli, and then Harath. I mean, you were the, the greatness of the Sri Lankan team continued well after '96. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I think the really institutional problems were papered over by the emergence and really the sustainability of really world class players. I think the '96 World Cup was a huge springboard on the pitch in terms of building confidence within the team. I think we saw. Sanath Jayasuri had had quite a sort of stuttering international career through the early part of the 90s and kind of developed into a world-class player overnight. Murali became really a world-beater, a match winner in all conditions. And then you had guys, as you say, Peter, young guys coming through, Jaya Wardner, Sangakara, uh, Atapatu broke through. And then it seemed that Sri Lanka was kind of in a state where every time 
a player departed, there was a ready-made replacement to step in. I think Jaya Saria was so crucial in white ball cricket from 96 right up to sort of the middle of the 2000s. And then as soon as he departed, Dilshan had this sudden emergence as an opener and stepped in. When Murali disappeared as a match winner, he was to a certain extent replaced by Hirath. So there was kind of a consistent pattern of individual match winners papering over the cracks, which sadly now seems to have dried up. And Sri Lanka really, I think, are looking for a few players to come in and take this team up, drag this team up by the scruff of the neck. Otherwise, there are real problems. Is there also a huge... One gets a sense of major factional problems stopping the cricket... All countries have this as well, but really serious factional problems in Sri Lanka. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there has been factionalism. I think the way that board officials are elected leads to that, where um, there is an election every year and clubs and sort of district associations vote in the office members. So you'll have the president voted in on what should be an annual basis. It hasn't really played out that way because elections themselves have been very problematic. But there is a trend where one administration starts something and another group comes in and they don't develop what that administration started. They sort of tear it down and start again. So I think that lack of long-term planning, that inability to kind of think long-term and really sort of build continuity is a major handicap. And that's the Sri Lankan cricket board is heavily politicised, isn't it? And has been for a, for a long time. I think it's even formally uh, appointed by the government, isn't it? Um, it? It isn't formally appointed by the government, Richard, but often the board, in uh, especially in the past 20 years, mm, there have been no. several occasions where the board have been stood down and oh. replaced by government-appointed interim committees. Oh, uh, yeah. But even beyond that, going back to a sports law that was introduced in 1973, you have a situation where every national squad has to be ratified by the sports minister, <laughs> which was uh, brought in, I think, well-intentioned uh, yeah. in a well-intentioned sense, because in 1968, there was an absolute disaster <laughs> where... Sri Lanka were intended to tour England for the first time and it was expected to be a sort of stepping stone towards test status. Um, and two of the selectors ended up picking themselves. Uh, <laughs> picking themselves. Picking themselves. Picking themselves. <laughs> That's a, a very, um, you know, we've heard that story in Indian cricket and Pakistan cricket, so it happened in Sri Lanka as well. Yep. It did. One of them was the established wicketkeeper, but he also upgraded himself to the captaincy. Um, so uh, there were problems. There were financial problems as well. And that tour ended up being scrapped uh, mm much to, uh, I think, the sh the disappointment of the MCC and disappointment of people in cricket, people in Sri Lanka who realised what a good opportunity it was. Um, so this sports law was introduced to sort of try and avoid a repeat, but I think it's really created a situation where the ultimate arbiter of squads is someone who has concerns other than cricket um, and can, you know, there's I th there have been rumours of lobbying from all sort of corners. Um, the whole thing is really quite sort of convoluted and um, it's uh, oblique, shall we say. Tell me about the... Uh, of course, Sri Lanka was struck by this horrible, terrible civil war. And Tamil versus Sinhalese, is that an issue? Or how, how is that managed? Um, it's 
it's very complex. I don't think that uh, sort of racial discrimination or disharmony has uh, impinged on cricket institutionally. I think there are logistical factors which have seen Tamil involvement in cricket uh, sort of decreasing across all levels of society. That's very troubling because, of course, Murali was a Tamil. You can't. Murali was a Tamil, and I, and I think was um, sort of one of Sri Lanka's greatest heroes through the nineties and the two thousands. Um, and I think there was a sense, really, when Murali was first no ball by Daryl Hare on Boxing Day, nineteen ninety five. Um, I think. Perhaps. I can feel my blood pressure rising at the mere mention of Daryl Hare. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> Just... <gasps> yeah, well, of course, he's no friend of Pakistan's either, is he, Peter? <laughs> let's not, let's not no, in my view, no friend of cricket, but we must not go into libelous territory. Yep. Yes. No, we better not divulge too far. But so, let's I mean, start, I let's maybe... not start that hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, I think maybe if that had happened to Murley in a earlier generation, or had he had a different captain, he might have been sort of proverbially hung out to dry. Sri Lanka, I think, maybe would have sent him home and decided not to rock the apple cart, as it were. But um, to see Arjuna Ranatunga, a Sinhalese Buddhist, really throw all his weight behind Murali, say, look, we're mm. going to back this bowler to the hilt, at a time when Tamil-Sinhalese relations in Sri Lanka were really fraught, I think that sent a really powerful message to the country. And I think that message only sort of continued to be sent out through Murali existing in a side which was largely made up of Sinhalese cricketers. And so I think really for that whole era, 1995 to 2010, or 2008, really, I should say, when the Civil War ended, the Sri Lankan team kind of stood as a symbol of what a reconciled Sri Lanka could achieve and the potential power of ethnic reconciliation. I tell you what, when when you we're going to have you back when your book is published in in May or June, is it? I think year? well, we're still a bit tentative, but we're hoping June or July. It's Penguin. Penguin is publishing it yeah. this summer. We're going to have you back then, and we're going to explore this extraordinary, fascinating theme of the civil war and and Sri Lankan cricket. But uh, what just brief, but just saying, the Tamils you're saying now are, are finding it harder to get into the national team, or for whatever reason. Yeah, well, I think there are a number of reasons. I think, well, if you look at Jaffna, which is geographically very far removed from Colombo, and so even prior to the Civil War, I think there's only one Jaffna cricketer who's ever broken into the national side, a chap called uh, C. Balakrishnan, in 1969. And if you look at his career, he played a few times for Salon and then emigrated to uh, the USA to become a doctor. And I think that gives a sort of uh, general sense of the pathway of Tamil cricketers because Sri Lankan society during the war was, as we might say, hostile towards Tamil advancement. There was a huge urge towards emigration. Um, so you had parents less likely to encourage their kids to play cricket and you have lots of instances of cricketers playing a little bit of first-class cricket or schools cricket and then going abroad. Equally, Jaffna was behind a sort of LTT curtain. It was uh, controlled and cricketers couldn't get out. So the wonderful Sri Lankan cricket writer Andrew Fidel Fernando has told a really heart-wrenching story about a guy called uh, M. Kandipan, who was a fantastic Jaffna cricketer and 
consistently tried to get out and make it south to Colombo so he could try and work his way into the national side, and it just became impossible. Nicholas, um, the, the composition of Colombo seems to be roughly even between, evenly divided between Singhalese and Tamils. Are um, Tamils not getting into the best schools in Colombo, and is that a reason why they're not breaking through into uh, Sri Lankan cricket afterwards? Um, no, I don't think it's a uh, lack of sort of Tamil presence within the leading schools. Certainly, there was quite a large Tamil presence at St Thomas's, um, but. From memory, I can think of only one Tamil cricketer who was sort of in and around the first 11 setup. There is a sort of basic generalization um, in Sri Lanka that Tamil parents have uh, been sort of pushy and pushed their children towards academia. So whether there is a uh, reluctance for them to be involved in sport at schools, which in Sri Lanka really becomes all consuming, if you're in a first 11, um, your studies tend to fall behind the wayside because you spend so much time playing cricket. So that may be a factor which is kind of impinging on things. It's a bit like Mike, isn't it? Mike and Smith. Yeah, yeah, yes. Mike studies. Yeah, they get removed. Yes, they both get removed from school for playing too much cricket and um, get sent to a school to study, in <laughs> and uh, end up not studying very much anyway, um, and going on <laughs> playing cricket. But there we are. Um, Thinking of the Tamils, what has been Sri Lanka's general relationship in cricketing terms with India? I mean, do Tamils play go and play cricket in India rather than it rather than Sri Lanka? Um, there is a sort of history of exchange going right the way back, you know, to the early days, to the first part of the twentieth century. Uh, tours to and from India were a sort of really big building block for Selenese cricket. Um, and then in the nineteen fifty three, I believe, the Gopalan Trophy. Um, was inaugurated, which was between Ceylon and Madras, or Tamil Nadu, the name sort of shifted interchangeably, um, which was really uh, a crucial um, building block and sort of the lifeblood of Sri Lankan cricket during the 50s and the 60s, uh, because, of course, at this stage, Ceylon was still on the outside of the ICC and was really at the will of the whims of the bigger cricketing nations. They were grateful for any visits that they received and so often there were huge chasms in the calendar and there was this question of how Selenese cricket can advance without playing regularly. So to have the Gopalan Trophy, an annual fixture which sort of um, would, would alternate from Madras and Colombo, was a real boon for Sri Lanka and from the 60s it became a sort of mini tour of South India. So it was really a chance for players to test their mettle and also, I think, to grow as a group, because in the 50s and 60s, when Sri Lanka's cricketers were playing in Colombo, there were no team hotels. Uh, they were all working full time jobs. So there was very little training. They would sort of end work at five o'clock and it gets dark by six. So you're sort of fitting half an hour in in the evenings. Um, and so I think there was a sense amidst the players that going away on these Gopalan tours to India, spending time together, getting to practice, really getting into the mindset of cricket for a week or two, really helped the development. What's odd, though, is that as Richard and I discovered when we researched Pakistan cricket, it was Pakistan, in particular A.H. Kadar, the kind of who ran Pakistan cricket in the 70s, who really pressed the case for Sri Lanka getting test status and ICC membership, whereas India was seems to have been or gives me the impression gave us the impression of being much more um less less keen 
Yeah, no, you're right, Peter. I think absolutely there's no doubt that um, Kadar was uh, Sri Lanka's greatest champion during the 70s, during that final push towards test status. Um, I think even at one case in 1975 or 76 at the ICC meeting, he sort of banged his fists on the table and accused England and Australia of racism. Um, Bloody good. He's a great man, Kadar. If he did, that would be typical. Yes, <laughs> yes he was. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't fond of Australians unless they were called Don Bradman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think India sort of maybe supported Sri Lanka more tacitly. They were the ones who proposed Sri Lanka for associate status in 1965, once Sri Lanka had sort of remarkably won an unofficial test in Ahmedabad. Whether... Sri Lankan-Indian cricketing relations worsened during the 70s and 80s due to the civil war and a sort of Tamil lobby from Tamil Nadu. I'm not sure and I'm not sort of, I couldn't really comment on that. But uh, I think you're certainly right that Pakistan have been Sri Lanka's greatest champion and that there's a real sort of fraternity between Sri Lanka and Pakistan despite the fact that they've had quite a spicy history on the pitch and... um. I think both nations are not too fond of the other's umpires, going back to the days of home umpires. Mm. But the relationship survived the terrible attack on the Sri Lankan cricketers in Pakistan, didn't it? In fact, Sri Lanka you know, went on playing test matches with Pakistan, first in the UAE, but they were the first country to go back to Pakistan, weren't they? Yeah, uh, they were. And I think, I mean, that's really remarkable. And it really is testament to the strength of that relationship. I think also there is the factor that Sri Lanka were without international visitors from 1987 to 1992, after there was an attack while New Zealand were there. Um, So I think they understand the uh, detrimental effects of being sort of cricket lepers. And there was a sense that they owed something to Pakistan and wanted to help out. Nirali also, in an interview on the attack, said um, they coped with it better than another team might have done because they were almost inured to terrorism. Um, yeah, I think said something there, like that. Mm. I think there is a sense, definitely amidst the players, that the situation in Sri Lanka sort of readied them for what happened in Lahore. As far as I'm as I've been told, uh, the players hit the ground very fast and all stayed there. I, I mean, they were sort of prepared because of bus bombings and things like that in Sri Lanka. Um, and I, I mean, I it's bus worth just to, to the picture here. The bus was uh, was halted, wasn't it? And so it's, it's coming under attack from machine gun fire and rocket propelled grenades, isn't it? At this moment, and it's a ta- horrifying moment just outside the Gaddafi Stadium. Yeah, absolutely. I think the tyres had been blown out. The bus was stationary. And I think I think no one's entirely sure how long the attack wore on for. But uh, the players inside the bus said it felt like minutes and minutes. And I think really it's a sort of miracle that no one on that Sri Lanka bus was killed. Mm. I think we should pay a tribute here to the driver. We met him. Well, we, we interviewed him. He's, uh, we did a profile of him in our book, um, White on Green. But um, the coach driver, uh, Mayor Mohammed Khalil, uh, had the composure and the quick wits to go on driving the bus right into the stadium, even though even though all the tyres had been shot out. And he got, them, he, he got the bus into the stadium and was understandably 
fated in Sri Lanka afterwards. Uh, we've seen the, the pictures of him being greeted there. And it was very nice that they, Kumar Sankakara took an MCC team back to um, Pakistan uh, earlier, uh, well, last year, uh, before COVID, and, um, uh, and was reunited with him, which I think is rather touching. Yeah, I think a lot, lots of the players felt they owed uh, their lives to Mohammed Khalil for this, his, his sort of bravery and quick thought. And um, I think he said that he saw a grenade thrown under the bus, but the pin hadn't been properly pulled, so it didn't explode. Mm. And um, just as they got the bus moving, an RPG sort of smashed into a lamppost where they'd just been. And I think Dilshan also deserves a little tribute yes. here, because as I understand it, he sort of stuck his head above the parapet uh, right at the front of the bus and was helping the driver with directions. Yes, he did. Mm. Um, so it was, I mean, it's a real, really horrible tragedy, but a miracle that none of the Sri Lankan team were fatally wounded and that they were all able to return to the cricket field within months. Mm. Yep. So Nicholas, um, we're all... All of us, even England supporters, uh, are gagging it. You know, we're keen in a way. We want Sri Lanka to do well. Tell us a little bit about the the current team. Well, I think it's a tricky question, Peter. I think that uh, the first two days of the test were really heart-wrenching for Sri Lanka's fans. Um, And for lovers of cricket. And for lovers of cricket to see all of the top six really throw their wickets away at a stage when the goal pitch was good for batting which it doesn't stay good for batting for too long I think that was really upsetting and then equally I think on the second day to see uh, the spinners sort of struggle to maintain control was equally a little worrying and you start to think how is this side going to take 20 wickets if they can't build pressure at goal which is has traditionally been a sort of wrecking ground for visiting teams I think the team is in a bit of a transitional phase Uh, this is their first test match at home in almost a year and a half. They traditionally haven't travelled well, so I know they lost 2-0 in South Africa, but I don't think too much can be read into that. But they've, you've got Mickey Arthur, a fairly new coach, given Corona's stopped them playing too much cricket. And you've got a kind of mix of stalwarts. Uh, I think the three who you'd pick out are Karuna Ratna, who's not playing in this test because he fractured his thumb, usually the captain, and has been a very steady opening batsman over the past few years. And then Matthews and Chandamal in the heart of the middle order, alongside some players like Kusal Mendes, who have been sort of touted as players of potential for quite a number of years now. And really, Sri Lanka are waiting for them to show that potential in sort of more than just mere flashes. They're a young pair of spin bowlers who people are very excited about. Lassith Embledenia, who I think bowled nicely, a tall, classical left-arm spinner. And then uh, Wanindu Hasaranga, who's a hugely exciting prospect in white ball cricket, a uh, leg-spinning all-rounder. He bowls sort of the modern white ball style of leg spin quite fast into the deck with lots of googlies but I think based on the performance here the jury's out over whether he is ready yet as a sort of frontline test bowler. Mickey Arthur mentioned both of that both of those two to us when we talked to him uh, last year but um, Nicholas we talked earlier about this great generation of about 15 years of really great Sri Lankan players what sort of legacy have they left in cricketing terms? Are they still inf- are any of them still influential in Sri Lankan cricket at all? Are any of them mentoring 
younger players? Are any of them have any of them developed sort of proteges, or are they just kind of revered figures in the past? I think I'm. Um, of course, they're very revered figures. They have been involved in cricket. Uh, Sanath Jayasuri has been chairman of selectors, as has Aravinda de Silva. Um, Arjuna Ranatunga has been head of the cricket board. So there has been kind of involvement. I think from the next generation of greats, guys like Kumar Sangakkara, Mahela Jayawardena, Murali, um, they are involved. I think there's perhaps an awareness from those players that getting involved in coaching roles, administrative roles, is perhaps something of a poison chalice and that mm. it's a very tricky thing to do. I mean, you look at Mahela Jayawardena, who has, I think, one of the great cricket brains anywhere and has been a resounding success as coach of the Mumbai Indians. And I'm sure that any Sri Lankan board official would be clamouring for him to be involved in the national setup. Can I just dig a little bit deeper? Why is it, because it's obviously disastrous, that the great players who have got coaching ability regard going back into the coaching roles as a poison chalice? That sounds horrific. Yeah, it's not a great situation, Peter. I think um, if you look, Sri Lanka's had foreign coaches, uh, I think from 1999 at the World Cup when Roy Dias was the head coach, right up until Chandika Hathrasinga was employed in 2018. And that didn't work, did it? Even though he had great credentials, he didn't work for him, did it? It, it didn't work. And he was he, highly respected. He came, uh, I think... Kumar Sangakkara specifically had spoken about him as someone who was really the equal to any of the foreign coaches he'd worked with. And he's touted Hathrasinga was the sort of shadow coach, which is a funny term, uh, while some of that great generation was still there. And a lot of them had touted that him as being sort of crucial in developing their games. But he came back as head coach in 2008-18 and had a really torrid time simply because I think it's so hard for a local coach to avoid being dragged into local politics. And it's a tricky one. I think that for Sri Lanka, with the system as it is um, currently, a foreign coach is simply a better fit. Um, and I think it works best if that foreign coach is someone who is a strong personality and is willing to work with the board, but also stand up to them on occasion. I think Tom Moody's really the prototype of someone who's done really well in Sri Lanka. How's Mickey Arthur doing? Mickey's been there, what, about a year, a bit more? We interviewed him, Richard, what, last summer sometime? Last summer, yep. And he was very he was very upbeat. He was very he was impressive up, indeed. Yeah. He was very... Play, working very open. hard in lock, despite lockdown, he told us. Um, and he seemed to have a good relationship with them. Um and of course, he's hugely respected and did a phenomenal job in Pakistan. How's he getting on in Sri Lanka? Yeah, I mean, I think Mickey's got the right sort of personality and characteristics for the job. And I think that the, his previous role in Pakistan would have given him sort of good preparation to the kind of cultural barriers that he'll face coaching in Sri Lanka. It's difficult to judge how he's doing because so little cricket has been played due to the COVID situation. There was an ODI and T20 series at home against the West Indies uh, early last year where the signs were really promising. Sri Lanka looked much sharper in the field than they had done. Basics were better. There are young players that people are excited about. But with a kind of limited sample size, it's difficult to judge. I don't think too much can be read into the 2-0 defeat in South Africa. Sri Lanka was sort of 
uh, suffered a spate of injuries mm. and um, they're always going to find it hard in places like South Africa and Australia. But the rest of this test and the next test, I think, are really crucial because if Sri Lanka can't compete in test matches at home, specifically at Gaul, where you get, you know, sort of really turning tracks, then they're going to struggle to compete in test cricket anywhere. And the board haven't historically always been particularly patient with coaches if things Hmm. aren't going well. So I think for Mickey and for the team, it's really important that even if they don't win either of these two test matches, that they show that they are capable of competing. What was the reason for the first innings display? It seemed absolute lunacy, actually. The Again and again, what test, test batsmen getting themselves out in a way which, quite frankly, in our local club side, you know, we'd have gone back shamefaced to the pavilion. Um, it's really hard to sort of reconcile and justify, Peter. I think you look at, I mean, there's three dismissals which really stand out. Uh, Thiramani turning it round the corner off the face of his bat to leg gully. Uh, then you've got Kusal Pereira, second ball of uh, when Bess comes on reverse, sweeping him straight to slip. And then completed by Dick Weller, who gets a really rank log hop, long hop and sort of slaps it straight to point. Um, I don't know whether you could talk about a sort of collective brain fade. Sri Lanka just not quite having their head in the game. But really, it's inexcusable um, in a situation where you know the pitch is going to break down and start taking turn. And really, it's, uh, I mean, it's incredibly important at Gaul putting up first innings runs. And they dug a massive hole for themselves, being all out for 1-3-6 and handing England the wickets in the way that they did. What was the crowd's response to all this? Did the crowd get on, I mean, the, did the crowd get on their backs at, at all? What, I'm uh, sorry, well, the Sri Lankan public, I should say, yeah. I think the Sri Lankan public were disheartened. I think that there has been a process over the past 10 years, really, Richard, where the Sri Lankan average man has become increasingly uh, sort of alienated from Sri Lankan cricket because of the sort of uh, repeated poor performances. I think this is a team that's still capable of producing flashes of remarkable cricket. Um, And even in the past five years, there have been some wonderful results. I mean, in 2018, 2019, they went to South Africa and won 2-0, which was the first for an Asian side. Um, But that came off the back of being absolutely obliterated in Australia. So you think, I mean, the sort of wild fluctuations in this team's form... uh, you just don't know what to expect, and when they play well, it sort of uh, there's a sense that it's the aberration rather than the rule. Where I think, you know, if you look at the period from the late '90s through to 2010, teams went to Sri Lanka and they knew they were going to face a really tough time. They were going to face a trial by spin. Uh, the batsmen were going to more often than not put up big runs. So I think. As much as anything, really, the problem facing Sri Lanka is one of perception, a perception by the rest of the cricketing world. They had to work so hard to shake off minnow status. And now it seems like uh, they're really back in that position where they're considered. It feels a bit like the West Indies, what happened to the West Indies at the start of this century. Just to follow up Richard's question, what what sort of press mauling did they get after the disastrous first innings? Um, well, I haven't seen much of the local press. I've seen um, Andrew Fidel Fernando, who is the Sri Lankan cricket correspondent, sort of um, ripping into the side a little bit. And I think there are reasonable concerns 
about this side. I mean, Sri Lanka might say that uh, they ideally they would have had Karuna Ratne, perhaps Ashada Fernando and Dananjaya de Silva all in their top six. So three of the top six weren't there. Um, but you look at some of the players, I think Lahira Thuramana, who's opening, um, is averaging 22 after 37 tests. Um, <laughs> and you think... Uh, how many other test sides in the world would he be getting into with those sort of numbers? Uh, Dick Weller, the keeper's been touted as a real player of potential for a long time, but he's now, I believe, approaching 40 tests and was, is still without a test century. And then at the same time, there are players in first-class cricket who have remarkable records, but you sort of are forced to question whether those records are sort of paper records. There's a guy called... Pathum Nisankar, a young opener who's 22 and averages 67 in first-class cricket um, and isn't getting anywhere sort of into the national side. So it's a it's a really tricky sort of... It's a conundrum. And you have a situation where players are coming to test cricket and kind of learning on the job. It's so disheartening for cricket lovers because we all love Sri Lanka. There's something about the kind of joyfulness of that, of the way that Sri Lanka played its cricket and it's a new expression. It was the first Buddhist cricket team. Sri Lanka were great innovators in their great days in um, in cricket in the 90s and the 2000s, and they're players of real quality. But that isn't totally why the world really fell in love with them as a cricket team. What do you think, what was the extra magic that you think they, that they brought to um, the cricket world in that time? Uh I think there are a number of factors, really, Richard. I think it has to start, really, with the 96 World Cup. Such a remarkable fairy tale. Uh, I think months before the tournament, they were seen as sort of uh, maybe 33 to 1 outsiders. Um, They really came from nowhere. And when you think of the fact that that came just after Murali had been nobled um, on Boxing Day by Daryl Hare, mm. I think that was a situation where you really felt for Murali and you really felt for Sri Lanka to be sort of crucified on such a public stage, um, especially for a young, talented spinner, a cricket country that was really trying to build. Um, I think there was an enormous amount of sympathy for them. And then I think there was something very alluring about the style of Sri Lanka's cricket. I mean, you've got remarkably attractive batsmen. Going back to 1995, the season that Aravinda de Silva played for Mm. Kent, I think changed a lot of people's perceptions of Sri Lankan cricket. There was that remarkable innings in the final of the B&H Trophy where he scored a really effortless hundred in a losing cause. Mm. He was very, he was very popular there. Very popular. And I think he was sort of derided Um, when he arrived. I think in one of his first games, he came to the crease and one of the fielders politely asked if he was the worst overseas signing in history. Um, (laughs) So he proved a lot of people wrong. He um, changed perceptions, scored runs in a very um, attractive way. And then you get to the 96 World Cup and Sanath Jayasuriya and Ramesh Kalawitharana really just changing the way cricket was played, going through and fearlessly attacking through the first 10 overs, playing remarkable shots. Uh, I think it was very easy to fall in love with Sri Lanka, captained by Arjuna Ranatunga, such an, a, a spiky, confrontational character who refused to be bullied by mm. uh, the Western mm. nations, which I think was something that had happened really um, from the 70s, 80s and 90s. The Asian sides had taken a lot of flack. And they were still playing a sort of gentleman's game in the age of sledging. 
And Ranatunga refused to do that. He was prepared to give back as much as he took. And I think people liked that. I think also there was something charming about the unassuming nature of Sri Lanka's cricketers. I think in this age of sort of sporting muscularity, where you had big, burly Australians, I think to see five foot three Aravinda de Silva come in mm. and sort of yes. crap people all around the park, I think there's something um, quite magical about that. Yes, he was a beautifully uh, put. To love, that's very well, very well put. Aravinda de Silva, I interviewed in, in his season with Kent, actually for Air Lanka magazine. It was the hardest interview I think I've ever done in my life for a technical reason. Um, he's so soft spoken. I don't know if you've ever spoken to him, but it was very hard to actually hear him and get his words into the into the recorder. Eventually, did, and I always wondered afterwards, how did any batting partner ever hear a call from him? So, um, well, they might not have done, Richard. I mean, I, I've called him the docile destroyer. He often looks like he walks onto the cricket field, um, having just awoken from a nap. Um, and he's a sort of really mythical figure in Sri Lankan cricket. There's a very famous story about him playing club cricket, um, which is that he'd always feel that first slip and he'd have a couple of fish buns, a sort of popular Sri Lankan snack <laughs> in his pocket, which he would um, sort of pick out and start eating as the bowler was running in. Um, so, I mean, the sort of law was that he didn't try in club cricket. He'd turn up and score 100 and take five wickets effortlessly. Um, <laughs> but what's very interesting that you touch on is that during this period, the ninth sort of uh, 90s, where Sri Lanka were really emerging as a force in one-day cricket, they were absolutely terrible runners between the wickets. Um, I think Arjuna, Aravinda, uh, Gurusinga are all candidates who've run themselves out and run their partners out numerous times. Mm. I think um, Asanka Gurusinga, who was quite an unsung hero at the World Cup, averaged close to 50, ran himself out three times in six innings. Mm. So really, uh, they were a fantastic one-day side, but they never quite mastered running between the wickets. Mm. Well, so they they had to bat. Then you have to bet better if you if you're running yourself out regularly. You you have to, have to bat better and have to deal in boundaries. Yes, yeah, that too, that too. Yeah, which they did, which he did. Nicholas, what can you tell us about Sri Lankan women's cricket? We haven't heard much from them, have we? Uh no, we haven't, Richard. Um, and it's really a bit of a sadness that Sri Lankan women's cricket hasn't. Um, sort of progressed further, especially as they've had one of the premier players in the women's game in Chamari Patu over the past decade, a really hard-hitting, talented batsman. Um, and so given her presence, I think the inability to sort of grow women's cricket and uh, develop a team that can compete consistently has been a disappointment. Um, I think, sadly, I might get into trouble for saying this, but it reflects the sort of gender politics, the wider gender politics in Sri Lanka, where women still really um, suffer from a sort of uh, a lack of autonomy. Yet Ceylon was the first country to have a woman prime minister. It, it was. And so, I mean, it's remarkable that really you still have this um, situation um, as it is where gender politics are very skewed and... Yeah, it's sad, and um, but Sri Lanka needs to do a lot more to promote women's cricket, I think. Um, in 2011, Kumar Sangakkara gave his astonishing spirit of cricket lecture um, at, at Lords, and um, it's still, um, 20, uh, 10 years on, it's still uh, remarkable to, to read um, uh, it's brilliantly composed, gives a great sweep of Sri Lankan history 
as well. But it was he opened out about the problems and deep-seated problems in Sri Lankan cricket. Did it have any influence on Sri Lankan cricket? And does he have any influence on things now? I think um, Kumar Sangakkara, as a person, as a personality, um, I think he's probably Sri Lanka's greatest ambassador. And I think he has huge personal sway and influence within the country. Uh, I think, as you say, Richard, the spirit lecture that he gave was astounding, I think, for any follower of the Sri Lankan game. Uh, it hit home very deeply. He touched on a sort of broad sweep of the history of the game, but also of the problems that have uh, plagued the administration over the past couple of decades. A lack of professionalism within the board, um, a sense that perhaps the board hasn't always supported the players, this um, idea of butting heads rather than a kind of united front. Uh, he touched on the factionalism that has set Sri Lankan boards. Uh, I think he touched on the lack of financial transparency and really his conclusions were that unless Sri Lankan cricket changes, there was a real risk of alienating the public. I've got a section of uh, his, uh, that lecture in front of me, the section saying, and he talks about accusations of vote buying and rigging, player interference due to lobbying from each side and even violence at AGMs. So it was a really searing indictment and, and you know, made publicly in the forum of world cricket. Absolutely, Richard. And yeah, as I said, there's a real um, uh, fear and hesitance to speak about these issues openly in Sri Lanka. <laughs> so for, um, yeah, for Sangakkara, such a powerful figure um, to talk openly about them was very uh, powerful. Of course, unsurprisingly, the administration and sports minister were upset um, and I think an official inquiry was launched. Um, I think for people in Sri Lanka, it was... Can you just say what no they that there was an official inquiry into the spirit of cricket lecture? Can you just uh, enlarge on that? Who, who, was, who made that decision and what was the inquiry? Peter, I believe a mission by the sports minister um, and just uh, that I think that they felt that Sangakkara had transceded where, what he should be doing as a member of the team in talking about the administration openly without their permission. Oh, so the inquiry, the inquiry was into Sangakkara's transgressions, not into the I believe failings, so, not yeah, the not failings into the... of not into the failings of Sri Lankan cricket, which he no, um, okay. <laughs> I think, I think, look for people on the inside of Sri Lankan cricket for fans of the game. I don't think the things that Sangakkara was saying were a massive shock. Um, I think around that time, Sri Lanka had just recorded huge financial losses despite hosting the 2011 World Cup in fairly suspicious circumstances. Uh, there were issues of over-selection. Um, but I think really to hear um, a, a former national captain and someone who is really a great national ambassador speaking so fearlessly about these things, um, because there's a great tendency in Sri Lanka to sweep these sort of issues under the rug and for people to feel a sense of fear in talking about them openly. So I think to hear Kumar Sangakkara speaking so openly about problems which have plagued Sri Lankan cricket was really inspiring to a lot of people. So what you're saying is something very kind of very interesting and also troubling is that it was a prophetic lecture that instead of uh, kind of dealing with the problems which Sangakkara 
identified the authorities sort of launched an inquiry into him uh, and they haven't dealt with the issues which he raised in that famous one of the greatest lectures ever given at Lords, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. I think they can be traced back to um, the stuff Sankara was talking about 10 years ago. And even further, I think if you uh, look at the 1996 World Cup as a huge turning point for Sri Lanka on the field, but also in terms of administration, because a board that had traditionally had no money was suddenly flooded with cash. um, And that had a huge effect on things and the administration has got much worse over the past 25 years and I think really the seeds of Sri Lankan mediocrity have been sort of sown from a stage when they still had realistic ambitions of being the best team in the world and um, what we're seeing now is really the playing out of a process that's been going on for a very long time. I think that yeah you say that cricket administrators didn't listen to Sangakkara um I don't think anyone's purposely set out to wreck Sri Lankan cricket, but I think that there has been a sense of entitlement amongst board officials that they know best rather than the players. Um, I think part of that, uh, the Sri Lankan sort of social hierarchy where elders are very much respected, I think feeds into that. Um, but you've got a situation where the board have meddled in things. Um, I think selectors over the, in the past have maybe transcended their roles and they've gotten I think the final selection of the 11 should come down to captain and coach. And when you get them butting heads with selectors, that doesn't benefit anyone. But yeah, I think there are really uh, deep institutional problems. And in a sense, Sangakara's speech was prophetic. I must say, Nicholas, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. And we're going to have you back because your book will be published in July, June, July by penguin um we'll get you back to talk about the the broader picture of sri lankan cricket and i've both richard and i've read sections of your book it's it's really tremendous it's a major event it fills a a huge gap in cricket literature which is an authoritative history of of cricket in the country which everybody in the world loves and everybody in the world yearns for sri lanka to overcome its current problems uh, and perhaps uh, I hope one thing is it's going to do so. So uh, we love Sri Lanka. We love your cricket. We love the country. We we need you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Peter. That's um, very spiriting to hear. And um, keeping fingers crossed that Sri Lanka can show a bit more of themselves over the final two days of this test and the next one. What's the score? Is It, clo- it must be close to play by now. We're close to close. I think we're now we're at 153 for one now. Um, Ooh, right. Ooh. And there's been rain around, which is Ooh. unusual for Sri Lanka in January. So if we get a bit of rain tomorrow, this test yeah. could, still could head into the fifth day with something to play. Well, you could win from here. Well, uh, that <laughs> really would be us. That really would be us. Meanwhile, thank you for being with us on what's still well. It's a rainy and gloomy day here in my part of southeast London. I assume it is for you too. It's much the same here, Richard. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure coming on and a real, um, really great to chat about Sri Lankan cricket with you guys. And I have heartening news from Wiltshire where the sun has come out and the rain has stopped. And it's goodbye from me, Peter O'Bourne in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller in South East London. <laughs>